0: Let us turn together to the book of Hebrews, chapter 7. We'll begin at verse 11 and read to the end of the chapter. Let us stand for the reading and hearing of God's word. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, A former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one who was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to god through him since he always lives to make intercession for them for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest holy innocent unstained separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens he has no need like those priests high priests to offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins, and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For as the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of God. May he write it upon our hearts. He may be seated. Let us pray together. We thank you that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. And so we pray that we might taste the joy of such liberty as we hear your word tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in the Heidelberg Catechism tonight. The Catechism was written by Ursinus and Olivianus. Now those are quite some names, aren't they? We don't really name children that anymore. But they must have been preachers, um, I think, for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one, the catechism is organized around 52 Lord's Days. So week by week, uh, in the span of a whole year, you can really cover uh, the basic heads of doctrine in a systematic and organized uh, form. That's a, very much a uh, churchly uh, schedule. But also, uh, it's organized under three points, or uh, three uh, distinct themes. The first is guilt. We have covered that uh, up to this point, in terms of the guilt of sin. Secondly, grace. God's provision for redemption through a Savior. And then lastly, it will be gratitude. The response to the salvation that has been bestowed. Guilt, grace, and gratitude. A very memorable and easy way to remember what the gospel is. Today we enter the section on grace. Questions 12 through 15. And another uh, preacher's favorite besides uh, 52 uh, Lord's Days and Three Points is acronyms. Uh, ways to memorize uh, certain words by connecting them to uh, letters. You know TDY or FBI, for example, but grace, I have found a good one. Uh, this is taken from someone else who has said grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. G, God's R, riches. Christ's, C, expense, E. God, it begins with him. It's God's grace. Just like the rays of the sun can be traced back to one source. So all the blessings that we enjoy can all be followed back to their one giver. There is grace because there is a giver. It's God's grace. But it's also riches. It's an abundant grace. It's a grace that fills us to overflowing. It's not just enough or meeting the need barely. But like the disciples who caught those fish and their nets were burst. So the grace of God overwhelms us with its blessings. It's through Christ. Everything that God gives to sinful humanity to restore them is through his Son. We only know the grace of God as Christ comes to us, as the Puritans used to say, he comes clothed in the garments of the gospel. He comes clothed in the robes of righteousness to be the one who speaks the good news. And how beautiful is are the feet of those, the one who preaches the good news. And it's at his expense. Now this is probably the most uh, important one for tonight because grace is free to us, but it still must be paid for. It still must be gained and earned by someone else. It was a very costly expense and achievement. And so it's Something that has to be merited and that's what Christ has done for us. He has purchased the grace that we might find favor with God. Now I've chosen the book of Hebrews tonight because it's a book about the grandeur and the glory of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it speaks of his all-supremacy as our great high priest. The betterness of Jesus in comparison to everything else, even as good as they were, even as glorious as the face of Moses was in the old covenant, that brightness, that shining face had to be covered, ultimately because it was passing away. The tabernacle, like scaffolding on a building, was only meant to be temporary, a picture, a type of what was to come. All these things are like an artist's shadowy sketch ahead of time, showing us what the reality would be like. And so you could think, I think, of Hebrews as a vertical temple and its uh, orientation. In other words, you remember the layout of the temple In the Old Covenant, there was the outer courts, there was the inner courts, there was the holy place, and then there was the holy of holies, or the most holy place. And what Hebrews does is it turns that vertically and says that the holy of holies is in God's heavenly presence. And none of the Levitical priests who offered sacrifices could get to that room, to that place. Once a year, Aaron would go into the earthly holy of holies and he would bring blood and he would meet with God and receive blessing there. And yet, that was only anticipating another and greater high priest, the one who would enact and constitute and bestow a better everlasting covenant. The book of Hebrews is about the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's one of its central themes, that Christ stands between a holy God and sinful humanity. And the mediation of Christ is also the theme of Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 5. As you notice in your bulletin outline at the bottom, what kind of mediator and deliverer must we seek? One who is a true and righteous man, and yet more powerful than all the creatures. That is one who is at the same time true God. We need a mediator. That is one of the most important features of the gospel, that it brings us to God through a mediator. You don't want to meet God without one. In fact, the difference between heaven and hell is simply this. Hell is being in the presence of God as sinners without a mediator. Heaven is being in God's presence with the Lamb of God sitting on the throne covered by His blood. Everything about the Old Testament said you need a mediator. You couldn't simply rush in to the Holy of Holies simply by yourself. You first took a sacrifice. That sacrifice was taken by the high priest who had himself offered a sacrifice for his own sins and then for yours. And then he would go in for you to the Holy of Holies. But we have an even better, superior mediator. In Christ. Finally, that one mediator between God and man. We will firstly see our stranglehold in debt. Secondly, our surety by covenant. And lastly, our satisfaction as complete. Why do we need a mediator? Because we are indebted to God, and yet we cannot Pay our debt because we are sinners. Notice Heidelberg question number 12. Since, according to God's righteous judgment, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment, how can we escape this punishment and be again received into favor? The answer, God demands that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, full payment must be made either by ourselves or, or by another. Man was made with an obligation to serve and obey God. The first covenant that was made in the garden was very simple. God told Adam to obey him, and on that basis he would receive life and blessing. If he disobeyed, he would receive death and be separated from fellowship and communion with God. Man owes God by virtue of being a creature under the Creator. If you look in your hymnals at page 859, you'll see the Westminster Confession and the way it puts this obligation in chapter 19 of... Westminster Confession, nineteen one, page 859. God gave to Adam a law as a covenant of works by which he bound him and all his posterity to personal, entire, exact, and perpetual obedience, promised life upon the fulfilling, and threatened death upon the breach of it, and endued him with power and ability to keep it. God said to Adam, do this and live. And Adam was furnished with all the ability and the heart and the will to carry this out. And yet, even though Adam sinned, God has not changed this requirement. Although the fall has changed our status, It has not changed the standard. Let me say that again. The fall has changed our status, but it has not changed the standard of righteousness. In other words, simply because man has failed to obey the command does not negate or compromise the command and its validity. If a king sends an emissary To bring a letter to a nearby village, and the emissary comes back and says, I only made it halfway. Even if the king forgives him for that, the requirement to bring that letter to its destination is still there. Kids, if your mother tells you to clean your room, and you do not, and you are disciplined, and you ask for forgiveness, and your mother forgives you. Your womb still needs to be clean. Simply, the forgiveness doesn't replace the demand for obedience. This is so crucial because it means that the covenant of works is still in operation. God still ties blessing and life to obedience. This cannot be changed. We see this, I think, in society and the way it operates on a horizontal level. We work and we receive wages. In sports, you have to perform to stay on the team. In all sorts of other environments, there is a principle of work and reward. But also, vertically, spiritually speaking... We owe God obedience as his creatures, as those made in his image. But we fail and in our natures are unable to pay this debt. The twofold debt now in sin, firstly, to obey the law in its requirements. And then secondly, to atone for those sins that we've committed. So now we're under a twofold obligation. One, to cover over those sins that we have committed. Secondly, to obey and bring about the righteous requirements of the law. That's why living in sin is living in terrible debt. It's the way scripture describes what it means to be a sinner. It means to be a slave, to be a debtor. To someone we cannot pay in ourselves. Jesus tells the story of one who exacted a debt even though he had been forgiven. And God, uh, uh, in, in the parable, puts this man into prison until he has paid the last cent. Debtor's prison. It used to be the case that if you couldn't pay your obligation... You would have to go to prison because of it. Debt must be paid one way or another. And so it becomes this sort of heavy necklace around our necks that we cannot escape. You are never completely free, are you, if you own a house or a car, having taken out a loan, until you pay it fully. You are always obligated to the one to whom you owe that payment. But with God, we cannot make any sort of payment in ourselves. Psalm 49 says it this way. Psalm 49, verse 7. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. This debt cannot be paid by climbing a thousand stairs, by doing a thousand various good deeds and actions. Giving of alms, fasting, none of these things can pay that debt. As question 13 says, can we ourselves make this payment? Certainly not. On the contrary, We daily increase our debt. It's as if we have this backpack. And we're trying to lighten the load. And so we take one rock out, only to take another heavier one and place it back inside. And every day that we live, the backpack becomes heavier and heavier. We are more and more in debt. One Song says it this way You load 16 tons, and what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. We are indebted to God, but in sin we cannot pay it. Who then can pay it? Question 14 Can any mere creature pay for us? In the first place, no. In the first place, God will not punish another creature for the sin which man has committed. Furthermore, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. That brings us back to our text in Hebrews, doesn't it? Because the whole Old Covenant system is built upon the lambs and the animals that would be the sacrifices. But ultimately, those things can never bear the wrath of God. They can really never take the guilt and the punishment that we deserve. As Hebrews 10 says, Hebrews 10.1 Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So, really, the debt only increases under the law. The heap of Indebtedness and guilt piles high in Israel, waiting for redemption, waiting for relief. That's why we have another covenant, another surety and mediator. Verse chapter 7, verse 20 through 22. Those who were formerly priests were made such without an oath, but this One, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If we cannot pay this debt, God in his love steps in and becomes a surety. Now what's a surety? If you look back in Genesis chapter 43 verse 44, you will see the account of Judah and Jacob. And there, two times, Judah says to his father, if he does not come back, namely Benjamin, It will be my life for his, my life for his. He's being a surety. He's taking on the obligation for the life of another. We have this even in our own arrangements in uh, our society. If your father or mother are a surety or guarantor for a loan, if you cannot pay the debt for the car or another good, then the guarantor has to take it on himself. In the covenant of grace, Christ becomes our surety. He becomes the one who takes on the obligation to pay our debts. You remember when God revealed himself to Abraham in Genesis 15. Abraham says, how do, you, how do I know that you're going to fulfill your promise? And God says to split open an animal. And as Abraham is put to sleep, he sees the heifer and he sees a great firepot passing between the pieces. Verse 17 A smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying, To your offspring, I give this land. Abraham doesn't walk through the dead carcass. God does. What does that mean? It means that God is taking on the obligation to receive the curse of the covenant so that Abraham can receive the blessing. This is the glory of the covenant that God makes with his people. That he in condescension, and in compassion, becomes the one to substitute for us, to mediate for us, to become the one who takes on both the obligation and the debt. That's why it's no accident that Jesus both obeys the law perfectly and makes satisfaction by his blood. You remember earlier we said that two things were necessary to obey the law personally, perpetually, and exactly. And secondly, to atone for sins committed. Both of these things Jesus does in what theologians call his active and passive obedience. His active obedience, fully yielding himself to the commandments of God. Not only for himself, but for others. Then, in his passive obedience, suffering the curse that was due to us, taking on the death that the covenant breakers deserved. He is the mediator and surety of a new covenant. This is why we're able to say, as Hebrews 6.19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. I love that image of an anchor. If you're ever out at sea, drifting from here to there on a storm with many winds, you set down that anchor and you have true stability, true security. We can only have such Confidence. If we have Jesus as the anchor of our soul, the one who has entered into the inner place behind the curtain, that is, behind the heavenly places, he has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. God has accepted him as our surety, as our substitute, as our representative. For by the disobedience of one man, death came to all. So by the obedience of the second Adam, righteousness and life come to us. And so lastly, we see the completion of this satisfaction through the work of Christ. If you have paid off your house, sometimes you have a mortgage burning party. I'm no longer obligated to That debt. God gives us a very visible picture of the paying off of debts through the work of Christ. Colossians chapter 2. A very significant and explicit passage in which Paul writes this. Colossians 2 verse 13 and 14. God made us alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Do you hear that? When Christ dies, you don't simply see your mediator dying, but with him, the debt that stood against you, the written code that says, You owe this. This has been nailed to the cross. No longer are you a slave to the debt and to that liability, to the curse. Now you are set free. If the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. Our satisfaction is complete. Satisfaction defined as the payment in full Of a debt. The 39 articles of the Anglican Church say it this way. The offering of Christ is that perfect redemption, propitiation, satisfaction for our sins. All our sins, both original and actual. It is paid. How do we know? In the Old Testament, when the priest offered the sacrifices... You would see the smoke coming up and the animal dead, but this priest would always still be standing. The book of Hebrews says that when Christ made payment for our sins, Hebrews 1.3, after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The priest who sits down as the priest who has completed the payment, completed the atonement, completed the obligation, and now enters into a new priestly work of intercession. He has made atonement. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once To bear the sins of many will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. What freedom there is now to know that we do not owe to God the atonement for which we could never pay ourselves. That God has made full satisfaction through the body of his son on the tree. And now the only obligation we have, as Paul says, is to love God and to love one another in freedom. Having been forgiven of our debts, as the Lord's Prayer says, we can now forgive our debtors. Set free from that heavy burden. Now lifted from our shoulders, we can also be those who forgive. God has sent a mediator. He has bestowed his riches. He has poured out on us such rich gifts, God's riches at Christ's expense. Amazing grace it is. Let us pray. We thank you, our God, that we can see the completed work of our lord jesus christ in the new covenant and that having been cleansed in our consciences we can no longer we can now flee to you and no longer flee from you and we can draw near with full assurance and true confidence oh lord we pray that we might continue to do this as those who worship you that you would give us that ability to walk by the Spirit and to glorify you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.